0: people who receive care compassionately are much more likely to adhere to their treatment. It can be really little things that make a big difference.
1: Hi, I'm Laura Nielsen and welcome to Hope in the Deep End. We've put together this podcast to inspire us all to keep working in areas of deprivation and poverty. We're sharing best practice, stories, outcomes, and some interesting thoughts and ideas. So whether you're working in primary care, secondary care, the charity sector, or any of the other myriad of roles, please listen and help us to keep each other inspired. Hi, welcome to Hope in the Deep End podcast. I'm with Jen Davies, who's a clinical psychologist. And this week we are talking about compassionate care. So how can we um, deliver compassionate care and how can we be compassionate to ourselves as we go about our work? So welcome, Jen. Hi, thank you. Lots of us do some quite interesting jobs, don't we? Mm -hmm. And we love our jobs, but there is also a kind of... uh, edge to it isn't there so whether whenever you're working with the public I think in any service um there's a there's a certain cost to that isn't there as a person so today we're going to explore how do you be compassionate how do you keep compassion and how do you look after yourself compassionately start us off with what are the benefits of delivering care in a compassionate way oh they're
0: huge so we I guess we might think that we know this intuitively that it's good to be compassionate and a lot of different religious approaches and a lot of different secular approaches as well have compassion as a core element. But we've also got lots of science that backs that up now. And there's been some writing in the field of, I think it's called compassionomics, which brings together the sort of economics and compassionate literature to see what are the benefits on a financial level, as well as kind of a feeling good level as well. And they're huge. So we see benefits in terms of if we offer care compassionately, we can see benefits in terms of the practical um, applications. So, for example, people who receive care compassionately are much more likely to adhere to their treatment um, than they would otherwise. We've got evidence of that. In terms of like the illnesses they might experience, their immune response system is is improved, so that they're likely to improve uh, to experience symptomology for less time and at a reduced level as well, and even things like neuroendocrinological—I think I mm-hmm. said that right—changes um, are evident. So, for example, people who have compassionate care are more likely to have their blood sugars at a, a, a good level in when they have diabetes as well so there's lots and lots of evidence now about how it can be helpful um, in NHS settings but it's easy to say that and it's harder to do.
1: It is harder to do so when we talk about compassionate care what do we actually mean? Mm-hmm.
0: So that's a really good question and I was doing some training yesterday when I asked the people who were there the participants what it meant and they some great answers like it means using empathy so you Mm -hmm. are able to understand where that person is coming from it means that person feeling like they've been heard understood and that the person with them is working alongside them um, to help find a solution to their problem as well so there's some kindness in it Mm -hmm. um, but it's also I guess it's a strong kindness because I think sometimes we think of kindness as being a sort of fluffy thing Whereas actually compassion in the way we might understand it or the way I understand it is it actually takes huge strength and commitment to be genuinely compassionate because you've got to sort of turn towards the suffering of somebody else and you've got to commit to do something about it, which is actually really hard. Mm -hmm. It's really hard work to do that. And it has a cost for people doing it as well. And I think that's why often people who work in healthcare settings go home feeling absolutely exhausted, not just because of the hours they work, but because emotionally they're putting a lot into it um, by turning towards suffering, easier to turn away from it sometimes.
1: Yeah. And I think, I don't think many people actively turn away from suffering, but I think people hide. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think it's easy on a shift to hide. Um, behind protocols or mm. like um mapping in our heads so you know as a as a doctor I kind of have my way that I can talk to differentiate you know differential diagnosis and I can kind of hide behind that and I can actually deliver on paper really proficient medical care mm. but not be very compassionate so mm. I, I don't think many people turn away from it but I think we are more than capable of hiding more than we probably admit to ourselves mm. does that yeah seem possible <laughs> yeah
0: yeah absolutely I think so and it's about people we're very attuned to other people because we're social mm. beings and we can tell if people are compassionately available for us so I'm just I'm remembering a sort of personal experience of this where my mum had an eye operation really recently at the beginning of the month and she came out of that saying I've had a delightful experience and that wasn't because it was a brilliantly successful operation you know we don't know that yet but it was more because when she arrived there was a healthcare assistant who helped to negotiate the parking system. When she got into the ward where it was due to be done her name was used by Mm. the receptionist and she said it was good to see her again. Mm. It was because instead of saying oh there seems to be an emergency when their eye pressure was too high she was told um, oh no this is you're on an express route (laughs) and and also this was the thing that really touched me like when my dad was parking the van outside probably feeling a bit anxious and checking that he'd got it in the lines the car park attendant came over and sang to him you are my hero and all of those things were like real examples of sort of compassion where somebody working in the healthcare system saw what somebody might need and offered them that which was above and beyond like what you're talking about, the kind of
1: the nuts and the bolts of the care that you might offer. Yeah, that's really interesting. So I, I had a similar experience. So I was in hospital and I'd been like hit by a car. So technically they'd done all the stuff they needed to do. And this nurse came over to me and I was like, you just feel completely... Odd, don't you, and discombobulated. And she said, What what can I do to help you? Mm. And I said, I really want my hair washed because it was like I had like really old dry blood still stuck in my hair from kind of a couple of days before. And she said, Oh, we're not allowed to wash hair anymore. And then she went away and spoke to her friend. And her friend came in and said, Oh no, I know how to do this. We used to do this in like the 70s or whatever. And so they kind of shuffled me up the bed because I wasn't allowed to move and um, like wash my hair off the end of the bed and just the care of doing that but also the fact that I didn't have to smell the blood anymore and mm. it just made me feel so much better as a human yeah. Yeah. even though actually the situation hadn't changed I was still stuck in a bed and I was still you know quite unwell so it's so sometimes it's those so small things and it, it did cost them because it cost them time and it cost them like creativity and how to find it how to solve the problem but you know as a human it was just that moment wasn't it where you're like oh yeah i've been
0: seen and responded to as a human that's gorgeous and there's some lovely examples of this i know they did some research um it's american research with people accessing oncology services and what they found was if they added 40 seconds of compassion to their interaction so they started the beginning of the interaction by saying hi i know i might say things that will be difficult to understand feel free to stop me i want to be alongside you and be helpful to you they did that at the beginning and then they sort of revisited it at the end just added 40 mm-hmm. seconds of chat and they found a massive difference in terms of outcomes for the the people going through that service as well in terms of their anxiety levels and outcomes um, so, it, I know as you say, there's a cost in terms of time, but actually, it can be really little things yeah. that make a big difference. It's, uh, there's some lovely examples as well. In um, they were writing, there's some writing in the Harvard Business Review actually that was looking <laughs> at a, um, a healthcare system again in America where they found making changes such as the receptionist saying instead of saying you need to come back in two weeks, saying the doctor would like to invite you to come back in two weeks actually meant that people were more likely to attend appointments again. And they had lots of lovely examples where they managed to turn around a system that was seen as failing because they tried to make heartfelt connections, they called it,
1: with their patients. That's really fascinating, isn't it? So just that shift in language Mm. changes how people receive and perceive what's going on. That's really fascinating. That's really interesting. So I can see as a kind of person who's working... I really want to be compassionate. Mm. But there's always a point in the day where it, like, runs out. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think it's on a timer. I feel like in my head sometimes it's like, you know, when you've got one of those um, sand timer things, mm. you flip them over and then suddenly all the grains have gone. Mm. <laughs> and what what can we do if that happens to us? How do we – because I don't want to be the person that turns mm. away and I don't want to be the person that, like, just hides. But I do know that in an 11-hour shift – yeah. There's that point where I just go, "Oh,
0: well, yeah, exactly." And I think it's recognizing that first yeah. that actually we do have our limits, and that's absolutely understandable. And that the systems that we work in often ask a lot more of us than we can reasonably deliver. Mm. So, I think recognizing that is a good point. There's a there's a model of compassion which is called the Compassionate Mind Training model and that sort of has been used within compassion focused therapy and i find that really helpful um so it Basically talks about us having three different emotional regulation systems. Talks about the threat system, which is developed to help us survive, and that operates on a sort of better safe than sorry principle. So it fires really quickly. So if we think there's danger around, our fight and flight will Mm -hmm. kick in um, or freeze. Mm -hmm. Um, So the thing that you were talking about earlier about maybe turning away from stuff or not engaging with it, it's protective that it Mm -hmm. stops us getting overwhelmed by it. So we've got that threat system. Um, And that's associated with cortisol rushes as well. Then we've got a drive system. That emotional regulation system is the bit that helps us get up and get things and do things. And that's associated with dopamine. So we get a nice rush when we feel like we've been successful at doing something. And then the third emotional regulation system that they talk about in this model is the soothing system. And that's the bit when you don't have to go and get resources. There's no threat and you just feel calm and safe. Now, the, what happens is when you're in a healthcare setting, both patients and staff often have their threat triggered mm. because it's health stuff, it is actually things that are going to make you worry it's the soothing system that we could really benefit from trying to activate in those settings if we possibly can, which is easier to say than to do. But if we're able to think about what helps us get into that very calm, soothed place in other situations, we can call them to mind in the moment and that can really help. Um, So for example, um, I've got a particular image that Mm. I think about that just makes me feel much better about life and it's taken a while and a lot of practice but i can sometimes i can feel levels of panic coming up in me mm-hmm. and if i think of that image because i've practised i can quite quickly get into a more soothed space And we know that we can use our different senses to get into that soothing network as well. So people are often um, soothed by smells. Mm -hmm. So I know some people who like use washing powder that they find really nice and or they wear a perfume that is good for them or an aftershave that's good for them. And when they feel the anxiety coming up, they just have a quick sniff. (laughs) <laughs> and it quite quickly grounds them and or touch. Some people have things that they touch. So, if, And it might be that that's connected with spirituality as well. They mm. might have an object that they touch that helps ground them. Um, so it's it's a sort of an individual thing in that sense about trying to find what helps you soothe most in the moment. Um, and if we're more soothed, our patients are able to be more soothed and we get less difficult interactions
1: generally. That's really interesting. So I guess that could be anything, couldn't it? That could be like songs, that mm. could be... And memories, it could be thinking ahead, you know, I'm going to see my friend on the weekend, mm. isn't exciting. So anything that kind of, I guess you're saying in your kind of neuroendocrine system switches the yeah. cortisol and dopamine off yeah, and releases the kind of serotonin and those kind of yeah, pathos. Oxytocin, oxytocin and those pathos. So, yeah. So that's really helpful. I think thinking about how patients are coming to us, obviously they're not going to be in a soothed state. No. So I'm thinking about, often we know, don't we, in the big situations, when we're giving big news or when someone's in, you know, had a big accident, we kind of inherently understand that there's a threat. I think sometimes I forget that when you come in with your child who's vomited twice, mm. that for me, this is, you know, not very threatening. And, mm. you know, there's lots of chatter in the healthcare system about All these people should go somewhere else. But actually, for those parents, they're in that threat state, aren't they? Yeah. And so my response to that needs to be to soothe because I'll have a better interaction and they'll feel more satisfied rather than a kind of heightening the threat by telling them off, you know, like even subtly. So I think that's really helpful. I I was really intrigued by your thing about that the threat system then releases loads of cortisol. Mm. So um, this is just an observation. I tried this week to not eat um, sweets all the way through my shift because I was like, you know, I'm going to be healthier. I'm going to like... Uh, not eat my body weight in haribo every shift <laughs> and i got to about six hours in and then i was like no no no, i just need some sweets and i think actually it's probably the sugar's a soothing thing isn't it for yeah. me rather than the kind of cause the rest of the week i don't eat yeah. like that. so that was really interesting that that's mm. possibly like an unconscious soothing a yeah.
0: threat yeah and that taste yeah. that you associate that taste with with encarming yeah that's really yeah. interesting maybe swap I'll something in for I'll your haribots if you want. I want to do that <laughs> yeah
1: <laughs> that's yeah. really interesting so there's there's loads isn't there in this compassionate model so it's about if you can if you can think in your head when you're with somebody are they are they threat yeah. are they drive are they um soothing and that we're going to try and move people to soothing both us and them yeah I think that's really powerful so you think about the drive thing I often um some of the most difficult interactions with patients are actually when they've they're clearly driven. They want an outcome. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they're like, I will have this. Um, and actually understanding that that is uh, some of that is subconscious for them, I think could be really helpful rather than winning the logical argument. Yeah, yeah, absolutely,
0: yeah. And again, it, it sounds easy when we say to do that, but it's yeah. hard work doing that yeah. because we're designed, as we're saying, the threat system gets triggered quite quickly for us as well. Yeah. And I think particularly when you work in healthcare and a lot of us get so much reward from working in healthcare, it can trigger our threat not to be able to help somebody and that can make us Um, panic more in itself.
1: Yeah. And it's harder to get into the soothe system as well. That feeling of being helpless is horrible, isn't it? It doesn't Mm -hmm. happen very often, but I actually said it out loud the other day. I said, I just feel really helpless with this person. I don't know what to do. And that... It's actually it's interesting, it was a healthcare assistant, mm. and I work quite a lot. It's like, oh Laura, you'll be fine, you'll work it out. And obviously just that helped me soothe down. Yeah. But that kind of moment where I was like, I don't know what to yeah. do with this person. Yeah. Yeah, is a threat it is itself, a threat. isn't
0: it? And that is a beautiful example of the other thing we need to think about. So we we need to think about the patients being threatened, trying to help them get to soothing, us being threatened and trying to get soothing, but also the people around us as a team. What do we do for each other that encourages a so- more soothing environment? And that example of talking mm-hmm. to your colleagues is a, is about being able to get some of that stress out mm-hmm. and re-engage with your soothing system, absolutely. Mm-hmm.
1: yeah. So if we think about how our healthcare system is set up, actually it's really fascinating. So what we what we ask people to do is, I think in primary care, we ask people to do like four hour blocks. Mm. Now, Four hours is a long time. Seeing someone every 10 minutes with a new drive or threat presentation to you. So actually, if we're going to take this seriously, we need to think about how do we build compassionate care in and not be asking people to do things that are actually impossible. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And having breaks within that where if you're in a threatening situation but you know you've got a break coming up where you will be able to do something that is soothing to you and or connect with your teammates Mm -hmm. then that is really helpful that's really helpful so if you know that is
1: protected you have time coming up to process so actually building in this time where colleagues can have the conversation and de-escalate each other is really important yeah like informally absolutely okay that's amazing so Um, The evidence is there from, well, I think it's really interesting that the science is now showing what, I guess, a lot of cultures and um, spirituality is known for a long time. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So that's really fascinating. Um, I guess the challenge for all of us is how do we actually embed this in our normal rhythms and our day to day? Mm -hmm. And have you got any final top tips for that? Anything that's worked particularly for you or for people you've been helping? I
0: think it is about having having these sort of conversations as a team and about trying to generate what is feels like real and realistic implementable ideas because otherwise it gets dismissed, I think. It's like airy-fairy. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And like, oh, we've just been told to be kinder again and it's our fault and it can, mm. that can feel punitive and a threat. So I think it's about working with people um, with all different roles within an organisation to to think about how do we make this the most compassionate culture that we can together? What will help it feel more compassionate Mm. to you? And therefore, you'll be more able to offer compassion to the people accessing the service.
1: And it's really important, isn't it, whether we're working in healthcare or social care or the charity sector, actually, it's all quite similar Mm. in some of this. So, you know, our reception staff actually deal with a lot of threat, don't they? You know, and the kind of emotional toil of that. Um, So actually, how how do we as a team work that out together as well it's not just the clinicians yeah. it's it is
0: it is it's as a team and it's celebrating when it's working because mm-hmm. there's beautiful examples where I work where reception have just managed to handle the situation a really difficult situation helped people get into a soothing place and then they're able to access healthcare. Mm-hmm. whereas they wouldn't have been if we hadn't had those really skilled people on the, our front line mm-hmm. as it were so yeah I absolutely agree making sure that everybody's involved in the conversation but also celebrating when it's working and doing more of those things
1: that seem to be working yeah that's really important isn't it so thank you so much um it's fascinating i think it's something we will return to again maybe at some point because mm. there's a lot in this isn't there um is it possible for us to put a few links on the information for people yeah. if they want to go and have a bit more of a read or a bit more of a listen to Definitely. find out more about it that's great yes thank you so much thank, thank you. you lovely yes. time to chat